Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Today, we're going to be talking about the DC books for the week of October 5th, 2021. Kind of a shorter week in a way, fewer books, but there are a couple of anthologies. We have a Halloween special, and then there's a Wonder Woman 100 page giant. Um, there's a few other books that are out this week that are not really mainstream DC stuff that we'll mention that they're coming out, but we're not really going to talk about them um, in detail. So, uh, you, you know, Rocky, usually you and I talk about what books that we, we want to cover, <laughs> what order we're going to go in before we didn't. So I'm going to, you, you pick the order. What, what are we going to talk about first? Okay. Well, uh, why don't we deal with uh crush and Lobo first? All right. Fantastic. Uh, so <laughs> I, I talked about this book last time in as much as it's not a book that I normally would have read had we not been doing these DC spotlights that we've started doing every week. But one of those instances where I'm kind of glad because it, it did take a little while, maybe three issues before I, I got sucked in. Cause I've said so many times, I'm not really a Lobo guy. Wasn't familiar with crush at all, but I'm really digging on this. Uh, so just to give you the creative team really quickly <clears throat> as a reminder, uh, it's written by Mariko Tamaki. The art is by Amon K. Nahulapan. Colors are by Tamara Bondelon. And letters are by Ariana Mare. Just to talk about the art at first, I, I really feel like Amon K. has... Not that the art was bad to start. I don't want to insinuate that at all. I think the art has been great on this book from the beginning. Well, well I'll say good on the book from the beginning, but now has is reaching that great level. Uh, I feel like his line weights have gotten a little lighter uh, as he's gone on through the series, as he's gotten a better feel for these characters and, and the storytelling and kind of the tone that Marika uh, Tamaki is going for with the na uh, narrative. So uh, th this one, this was fantastic. There's a scene where Crush shows up to uh, this alien woman's house who apparently Lobo's been stooping. Uh, and she's <laughs> kind of sweet and innocent, sort of seeming... Um, Julia. Her name is Julia. Yeah, Julia. And, <laughs> uh, you know, she just, I think there's more to her than meets the eye. She realizes that Lobo's a creep probably, but, you know, the whole thing about the bad guys, girls like to go for the bad guys. Um, but the reason I bring it up is because she, in the scene where Crush walks into her, her house, her little kitchen there, there's all these details. There's bookshelves with knickknacks, there's chandeliers, there's just, there's so much detail. And so I, I think both the, uh, the line work by Amon K and the uh, the colors by Tamara Bonvillan are are amazing. This this is such a great looking book. Um, and as far as the narrative, yeah, I've gotten kind of I've gotten kind of sucked in. Rocky was talking about early on where it didn't feel that much like Crush. She was a little too woe is me, a little too uh, emotional and emo. But the last couple of issues, she's really kind of come into her own in terms of acting like what you would expect Lobo's daughter to act like. She's ready to kick some butt. Um, she's mad at her dad, obviously, for trapping her in a prison and using her as a way to escape. And, you know, she's out there trying to, to track him down. And I'm very much looking forward to the, the confrontation. So this was a, a pretty fast-paced uh, story this time around uh, with, with Crush in pursuit. And it, it's kind of cool, the interesting little uh, narrative Easter eggs that um, Mariko Tamaki puts in here. With She's basically, what Crush is doing is following... Lobo cigar butts around the, the galaxy yeah. <laughs> to follow him. And I thought, just thought that was fantastic. So yeah, I'm really enjoying this. I'm again, it's not like one, two issues in. I was just, it felt not necessarily like a chore, but just, 
I wasn't excited to read it. I wasn't, you know, necessarily anticipating or looking forward to reading it. Cause again, I just had nothing invested in these characters and I'm still not much of one for, for Lobo. Like I'm, I'm reading this story for crush. She's definitely has, has grown on me as a character and I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. Um, so yeah, I, I, I enjoyed this, uh, this issue and uh, I'm enjoying the series three, three more to go. So plenty of time for Mariko Tamaki to, to take us on a few more twists and turns. Uh, what did you think of this week's crush and Lobo? Uh, you know, my opinions kind of stay the same. I, I feel that, uh, this is just not for me. I, I can't imagine having three more issues of this, of, of, of crush just chasing her dad around next issue. They're going to end up in space Vegas where Lobo is. Uh, I, I guess, I, I guess it's okay. I mean, people can have fun with it. I, I'm, I'm not really feeling it, but uh, I'm absolutely compelled to agree with you that uh, Marika Tamaki, even though I'm not feeling it, I, I don't know what it is. I'll, I'll fall on my sword for that. But I, but there's definitely a lot going on here. I mean, it is kind of funny. There are moments of humor, you know, following Lobo's cigarette butts around throughout space. Obviously, this isn't any kind of story to be taken seriously. On the one hand, it's premised on a fairly serious topic of her relationship. A crush has a relationship with her girlfriend on Earth. We're taking that seriously. But but they're almost like this treasure hunt of her hunting down her father. Uh, her basically, I guess, befriending the, the warden. They're, she gets out of prison in order to tr- track down her, her father. And, of course, he's whooping it up in, in, in space Vegas. And eventually she'll make it there. I... Uh, there's some fun moments here where apparently Crush, uh, space lizards apparently really love Crush. There was a scene here where an an, an alien was sicked, sicked his space lizards on Crush, but apparently they love Z- Zarnians, but there's only two Zarnians in the universe at these space lizards. Of course, there's only two Zarnians in the universe, Crush and Lobo, so... Uh, what a happy coincidence that being attacked by space li- lizards and it, it happens to be Crush, who's a Zarnian. Um... I find Julia, Julia's in love with Lobo, uh, Julia, this, this redheaded, uh, bosom. I mean, this is a, this is a very typical bosom, big busted redhead that of course Lobo's going to love that. Who, <laughs> who, any red blooded Zarnian would love that. Although I, does, does Lobo have, have blood, bl- red blood? I think he's, I think he's green blooded, I think. But in any event, uh, there, there's some fun moments here. Uh, there's fun moments. I, I do think that this is going to get, Unless something happens, I think I would think people are going to get tired of this rather fast. I don't know how this is going to drag on for another three issues, quite frankly. But it's going to be her text messaging her girlfriend, uh, Katie, on Earth, who is trying to text her. And and uh, anyways, Taki's having fun. And I will say this, this, this reads a lot more like a young adult fiction. And, and uh, DC Comics has had a lot, a lot more success. In fact... Uh, the recent young adult, uh, I think it was Craven and and um, Raven and Beast Boy. Their young adult uh, title has actually got some pretty high sales. It's in the top twenty of Amazon. So DC, I think, is finally starting to get some success on their young adult line. And even though this isn't young adult, this sort of has have a young adult sensibility to it. And I can see this sort of, uh, you know, I would almost think that in the future these types of of stories, DC might be better off putting this and maybe converting this to a young adult line. Given their their increasing success on what appears to be their their young adult uh, no, uh, graphic novelizations, but um, again, this isn't for me. But I can't, you know, uh, 
if you're a Crush or Lobo fan, yeah, I suppose. Especially if you're a Crush fan. As a Lobo fan, I want I want a little bit more graphics, a little bit more. I want this to be more black label, uh, preferably. But but it's it's not bad if you're a Crush fan. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that for sure. Uh, all right, what do you want to talk about next? All right, how about uh, Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman 80th? Okay, uh, Wonder Woman 80th. God, I f- it feels like ever since DC went, what was the first one? I guess Action Comics 1000, where they did these anthologies, it's been nonstop. That was followed with DC Comics 1000 and then Wonder Woman 750 and Flash 750 and Green Lantern, you know, 80th anniversary. Now, I feel like we already had a Wonder Woman one. Now we have another one. I know. Um, <laughs> it's just... It just, they seem never ending. And, and it was cool to have them once in a while, but now I feel like they're they're kind of doing the Marvel thing and sort of beating it to death and just using it too too often because I used to like these anthologies. And now when I have to read one to do these DC spotlights, I push, I save it till the absolute end because it's like, oh man, I have to read another anthology. And so I, I don't know. I just feel like it's kind of wearing out. It's, it's welcome a little bit, but this is important. Don't get me wrong. Wonder Woman anniversary is a big deal. There's some good stories here. There's some not so good stories. So I'll just run through all the uh, creative teams really quickly. Uh, the first one is In uh, Memoriam by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan, who are the writers in the current Wonder Woman series. Art is by Jim Chung. Colors are by Marcelo Aiello and Pat Broso on letters. Dreamers by Jordi Belair. Art is by Paulina Gonshow. Colors by Kendall Good. Letters by Becca Carey. Uh, they are the creative team that's been giving us the young Wonder Woman backup and the regular Wonder Woman title. So th- this kind of dovetails in with that. And then Fresh Catch, writer and artist Amy Reader. Marisa Louise does the colors. Carlos Manguel on letters. Dear Diana from writer Mark Wade. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez on pencils. Joe Prada on, Prado on inks. Trish Mulvihill on colors. And Clem Robbins on letters. Dated by Tom King as writer. Evan Doc Shaner does the art. Clayton Cowell on letters. Better Angels from Vita Ayala with Isaac Goodhart on art. Jeremy Lawson on colors and John Workman on letters. Saturn Rising written by Steve Orlando. Laura Braga on art. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Becca Carey does the letters on that one. Uh, Immortal Mysteries from writer Stephanie Phillips. Mar- uh, Marcio Takara on art. Marcelo Maiello on colors and Rob Lee on letters. And then finally, we finish up with Low Orbit from G. Willow Wilson as the writer, Megan Hetrick as the artist, Marisa Louise on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. And there's pinups in here as well. We have pinups from Nick Robles, Brittany Williams, David Marquez, Gabrielle Piccolo, Nicola Scott, Annette Kwok, Daniel Warren Johnson, Danny, Janina Medeiros. And then there's a bunch of covers. They didn't yeah. do the decade covers this time. There's a regular cover by Yannick Paquette and Nathan Fairbairn. And then there's a Golden Age variant from Amy Reader, a Silver Age variant from Michael Cho, a Bronze Age variant from Travis Moore and Adriana Lucas, Modern Age variant by Cliff Chang, Film-inspired variant by Will Murray, Television-inspired variant by Kat Staggs, Animation-inspired variant by Bruce Tim, and a Costume Celebration double cover by uh, Jen Bartel. So a lot of creatives worked on this book. Uh, and we'll just start with the first story, the In Memoriam by Michael W. Conrad and Becky Cloonan. With art by Jim before, before you do yeah, that, what's your favorite cover? I'm just curious. Uh, do you I, have a favorite cover? I, You know, I don't. Probably the Jen Bartel costume yeah. celebration, although none of them 
none of the covers really jumped out at me as uh, like I, I didn't order this. I didn't pre-order this. Uh, and yeah, well, there's no cover. Yeah, there's no cover where I went. Oh, I'm gonna buy it because I have to have that cover. Yeah, yeah. I just a quick note. I like Michael Cho's. I like the Silver Age cover by Michael Cho. I I, I quite like that. It just feels feels different, and it's vibrant yeah, and bright. I, I like it the best. But <laughs> yeah, I could see that. I could see that for sure. Right. Uh but anyway, let, let's jump into the first story, the in memoriam with with the Jim Chung art written by the the writing team of Michael W. Conrad and Beck, uh, Becky Clunan. So what I was struck by, so this story is, is Steve Trevor just got uh, a bunch of his friends together and, and had a, a get together in his apartment and everybody's gone. And Etta Candy's the one there helping stay late. It's almost three in the morning and they're kind of cleaning up from the party and they get to talking and Steve's like, I want to show you something. And he, he plays, a, plays her this documentary that, about Wonder Woman that he's kind of put together called Immortal Wonder Woman, where it's a bunch of clips um, and interviews of Wonder Woman through various times, um, interviews with Lois Lane, speeches she's given at the United Nations, news clips of her, uh, you know, doing heroic things and whatnot. And the insinuation here is that Wonder Woman has died, right? Wonder Woman's missing. And we know from the events at the end of Dark Knight's death metal that, yes, as far as the world knew, Wonder Woman died and everybody, you know, she, she was just missing and everybody just assumed that she she died. Um, and this is kind of remi a reminder of that. And then we're told, uh, well, the last panel of this story, we see Steve's phone there with the, these notifications from the Daily Planet saying breaking news, multiple Wonder Woman sightings reported. And we get a little teaser that says to be continued in Wonder Woman 780. Now we know that Wonder Woman's been kind of traveling these afterlife mythological realms what have you when she you know eventually or or originally turned down the opportunity to join the quintessence at the end of dark knight death metal um and she's been trying to fight her way back to kind of our reality and our our portion of the multiverse but here's the thing right and rocky and i have talked about dc editorial maybe not taking advantage of wonder woman being kind of off the stage so to speak and and having um Yara Floor and Nubia, you know, like Wonder Woman has not been around, but, but here's the thing, like not only have they not taken advantage of promoting Yara Floor and, uh, and Nubia enough in my mind while Wonder Woman was, was gone, I personally haven't felt, this is the first story I've read where, wait, Wonder Woman's gone in, in the reality and we actually see people like commenting on the fact that Wonder Woman is gone and, and yeah. people actually miss her. Like when, when Superman died and to a lesser extent, when Batman died, when bat, well, first of all, when Batman's bat was broken and he was gone. And then when Batman died with Batman RIP, like you felt that, right? You felt that in other books and there were events and it was a big deal that they were gone. I haven't even really thought about any kind of impact that Wonder Woman being gone in the, like DC universe proper has had because we haven't had any stories like, wait, people actually care that Wonder Woman was gone. Like they actually realized she was gone. I, I had no idea, yeah. but thanks for giving us this story to tell us that because, you know, in like two weeks we're getting 780 or Wonder Woman 780 where she's back. So yeah. it, it felt very like, like it doesn't fit. Like it felt very incongruous with what current DC uh, kind of reality is, but that being said, I mean, it, it was a nice enough story to, to you know, be reminded of, of the relationship between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. 
Um, and I thought the Jim Chung art was, was pretty solid. So it's an okay story. It just, it, it just again, reminds me of, of missed opportunities with Wonder Woman, which, which kind of bugs me. I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest Wonder Woman cheerleader. I, I like her as a character. I think she's like, when you compare her to the other big characters at DC, Superman and Batman, and you could even put Harley Quinn in that, um, in terms of like being explored and, and really, I mean, Harley Quinn, I would argue, has been better used, better utilized, better developed. And she's only been around, what, 20, 30 years compared to Wonder Woman. This is her 80th anniversary. Batman and Superman have had, like, different eras. And, and not that Wonder Woman has, hasn't, but such a wealth of rich stories to, to really examine the different aspects of Superman and Batman, especially Batman, just because we've had so many Batman stories over the years. Wonder Woman to me, it's still she still feels like people don't know how to write. They don't know what to do with her. DC itself doesn't know what to do with her, and this just felt like a reminder that Wonder Woman just gets the short end of the stick, time and time and time again. Um, so yeah, it, it, this story works, but it also works as a reminder that yeah, Wonder Woman once again is getting the shaft. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. What do you think, Rocky? Well, first of all, I'm just going to, for those not watching, uh, uh, for those listening to this on the podcast, uh, you, you're not going to see what I'm posting on YouTube here, but it's a, this is a rant alert. So I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant. First of all, this is an 80th anniversary of Wonder Woman. And I know we've gotten a lot of anthologies, but I, I got to tell you, man, this is the 80th anniversary. Where's Greg Rucka, Greg, uh, Gail Simone, John Byrne, uh, James Robinson? Who had, who all had significant runs on this character. Now I realize that maybe they got better things to do and maybe DC editorial has better, had, has better things to do, but I, I, I felt their absence for this 80th anniversary issue. Uh, I, Steve Orlando, oh, it's good to see Steve Orlando have a story. Uh, J. Willow Wilson, nice to see Stephanie, Stephanie Phillips get some love here. Uh, because we're going to be seeing her evolu her Wonder Woman evolution story coming out. But I do think that there was a notable absence of, uh, of of creators and artists and uh, art both artists and writers that should have ha should have had more of a role in this 80th uh in this 80th uh celebration to be quite blunt but uh so be it uh that's just the way it is now to answer, to answer your question in regard to the the story here i agree with you 100% i didn't know wonder woman was missing now of course we knew wonder woman was missing <laughs> and we knew that uh, we knew in theory, that the, the the citizens of the DC universe knew that Wonder Woman supposedly died, but we've got that long. We had that ten issue Wonder Woman arc. We've had ten or eleven issues of Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad's of Wonder Woman arc, where she starts off in Valhalla and then ends up going to Earth eleven and going off to all kinds of different places, but finally making it back to Earth. This would have been a nice story. I love the art here by by uh, 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 was it Steve Shung? Is that his name? The artist, uh, the artist on, on yeah. the first story, Jim Jim Chung. Jim Chung, right? Yeah, great artist, like the really good, like impressive art. Uh, I, I wish we'd have got. Frankly, the, <laughs> I'd like to see that art on the mainstream Wonder Woman title. To be honest, I I, I really like it. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more. Uh, I would have liked to have felt Wonder Woman's absence at the end of Death Metal, but even at the end of Death Metal, we kind of knew she was still alive. So nobody, none of us really got a chance to mourn Wonder Woman's loss. So if you, if we can't mourn her loss, it's hard to celebrate her return. It, something is taken out of that celebration. And unfortunately, 
that's just the way it is. And it's just, I think it was just per, per story management. I agree with you. I won't, I won't beat a dead horse. You said all there is to say about how poorly they've handled, I think, the Wonder Woman, uh, Wonder Woman coming out of death metal. Uh, between Wonder Girl, Wonder Wonder Woman title has been very disappointing. Wonder Girl has been disappointing, and I'm I'm hoping Nubia is going to be uh, more exciting. And I'm looking forward to Stephanie uh, Phillips' uh, evolution, and uh, we'll see where that takes us. But uh, this particular story, I think, was um, it was meh. It got us from point A to point B. Now Wonder Woman's back. I mean, I, I the last panel here it shows Steve Trevor looking at a note from Diana says, if you're still living in D.C. and I'm away, look to the east in the direction of the mascara. I will be there thinking of you. So I guess this ends with, like, who left Steve the note? I guess Wonder Woman got back and she went to his place and left him a letter. Uh, but she, what doesn't make sense is that the letter says to Steve, if Wonder Woman dropped off this letter for Steve, whereby she tells him that she's still alive, in the letter, it says, if you're still living in D.C. and I'm away. So in her own, in the letter, she says, "I." she admits that she doesn't know where Steve lives, yet somebody dropped off the letter. <laughs> so how did Wonder Woman drop off a letter for Steve if she doesn't know where he, if, if she still's not sure where he lives? Anyways, I thought it was a little bit uh, confusing. But it, anyways, it ends with there being multiple sightings of Wonder Woman because she's finally returned from her her excursions across the multiverse, but uh, I'm glad she's back. Now let's, let's get, let's move the character forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad she's back too. But again, I just wonder what, what's going to be the impact of her return when <laughs> it can't possibly have a huge impact because we haven't even felt that she was gone. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like why yeah. not? Why, why didn't you could have put just one page in each of the previous uh, Conrad and Clunan issues with just people lamenting that she's gone. You know, just just remind us that even though we're yep. reading stories of her to the real world, she's gone. Just some there's a lot of people that aren't going to pick up this um, this Wonder Woman eighty page giant and and if they make a big deal about her coming back, the people are going to be like, wait, why is it a big deal? Yep. So I don't know if that's part of the reason for this story. Probably well, not only this life. this story is twenty six pages long, uh, or it's uh, and or whatever, 24 pages long. And it, we got 10 issues of Wonder Woman going off umpteen different adventures. This should have been in the mainstream Wonder Woman title, this 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 particular in memoriam. I think that would have, it would have got more attention and at least given the illusion that there's some recognition that she's, she's gone. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't have much to say about the second story. Like we mentioned, it, it's the same creative team that have, have been doing the young Wonder Woman, which I, I feel like is a good story and great for younger readers. Um, we get that version of Wonder Woman meeting Nubia, which is great. Uh, although, again, I guess I you can't think about it too much. Like so Wonder, Wonder Woman's immortal. The Amazons are immortal, but they, they grow up, right? Like she's, they do age, which is so interesting to look at something like Stillwater by Chip Zdarsky where they're immortal and they don't they don't age. So I don't know, kind of interesting. I just thought that dynamic between Nubia, because Nubia's fully grown. They're supposed to be sisters. Um, so any, anyway, it's just something I noticed like, huh, that's an interesting dynamic. So yeah. eventually there'll be more <laughs> equals. But right now it's, it's Diana yeah. sort of looking up to Nubia and, you know, Nubia has – to some extent, authority over, over Diana, you know, she's asking, hey, please don't tell my mom. I, I, you know, snuck out here, um, to look at the, uh, doom's doorway or, or what have you. So, uh, but I, again, I do feel like 
it's not that important when you're because what, what this really is for is for younger readers where the continuity is not as important more self-contained stories and i i feel like this creative team jordy belair um and pauline and gonna uh they, they really are capturing the right tone to to pull in younger fans of of wonder woman so i i don't necessarily have a problem with it i'm, I'm nitpicking yeah. when i complain about the continuity uh, I, yeah, I can't complain either. It's it, it is beautiful art. It, it's it's suited for I, I think that young adult or young adult fiction. Uh, the idea, young Diana basically she rides her pet shark and fi- finds a secret way into Doom's de- uh, doorway there, which is all at, just so people know at the Amazons protect Doom's doorway from uh, because I I forget some evil forces can be released so they always got to protect it etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know, uh, Nubia points out the fact that if if, Di- if a young Diana riding her shark can find a secret entrance into the Doom's doorway, they probably need to increase their security. And uh, so I chuckled at that a bit. And they just have a conversation about truth. And this is about a young, you know, no matter how old you are, you, it, you always got to live your truth and find it. And it might be elusive, but you got to stick to it. So it's kind of a nice little lesson there. Uh, it's it's one that as longtime Wonder Woman fans, we, uh, we, we get, we hear... That's that's a tropey thing that's been played out again and again. It makes sense that it's going to be for younger younger readers, and it's young Diana. Uh, but I will I I just will point out the fact that we that that same lesson, by the way, we we get far too often in older Wonder Woman tales as well. It's a trope that, you know, it's just there's a reason why Wonder Woman just never seems to have that stellar story that's ever being told because they they always end up falling back onto the tropes. But in any event, it is it is. It is only the beginning, as it says at the end, but uh, it wasn't – not for me. <laughs> yeah, and again, I think the other point we should remind everybody is is how – like these are fine and the tone is completely different and it does suit bringing, trying to bring in a younger audience. But stop putting these as backups in the regular Wonder Woman book because, again, they're, they're just – it's such a different tone. Just put, put it out as a graphic novel uh, you know, in full once a year or whatever you need to do to just have it be its own thing. Or, or put it out. Di- put it out as a digital first, yeah, and then collect it in a in a graphic novel. Stop. Don't, don't put it in the regular Wonder Woman book. It, it doesn't work, and you, then you don't have to, to charge as much for the regular Wonder Woman book because it's kind of a stretch for people these days. Yeah. Uh, up next, Amy Reader, um, writer artist with the Fresh Catch. This story kind of harkens back to the Golden Age, uh, with Wonder Woman's trapped on this electromagnet because of her. Because of her bracelets. bracelets. Yeah. Uh, and then Etta Candy shows up with a bunch of sorority sisters, Beta Lambda, sorority sisters slash cheerleaders, and they beat up on these like dock workers that have been tormenting and teasing Wonder Woman. So it definitely leans into that whole golden age when Wonder Woman was first created, the William uh, Marston bondage kind of stuff. So uh, I think Amy reader does a great job of, of capturing that feel, but this story, this story was not for me. It, it was, it was cringeworthy in my mind. So uh, I'll leave, I'll leave it at that. What did you think? Yeah, I, it, it was a lot of fun. I want to give Amy reader credit here. She sort of, uh, she's, uh, it's 
kind of a little bit of a Riley Rosmo feel to the art, but it was, uh, but, but I like it. It's, it's, it's very golden age. Like I love the reference to Wonder Woman when I always have a mental radio. She actually brought up the mental radio. Wonder Woman used to mentally communicate with other, could mentally communicate with other women through mental radio, which was never fully explained in the golden age, but she could just, it was a glorified form of telepathy, but they called it mental radio. So it was kind of, I'm funny hearing that. I got, I get images of reading my old, I've got, uh, I've got archive editions of the first, first four volumes of Wonder Woman archive editions that it just sort of reminds me of that. This is all about female empowerment. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, seeing Etta Candy now, of course, the, the, the current version of Etta Candy is, uh, is a black woman. And this is the old classic golden age, which was the, the, uh, the slightly, uh, uh, shall we say big boned, uh, uh, lovable, uh, sort of, I guess, blonde uh, Etta Candy as opposed to the big-boned, lovable black Etta Candy that we have now that we read in the first. So it's it's pretty good. I, I like the art. I like the use of the stars as, as panels. On the, there's, a, there's a double-page layout. The detail in the art's really good. I mean, so this this was a lot of fun. And so this is probably, if in terms of, this is what a good tribute for what I expect to see in an 80th representing that particular golden age of Wonder Woman. And I thought this was nicely placed. It was uh, nicely placed and, yeah, it, and, and it captures the sensibilities of a, of a golden age story very well, quite frankly. And so I, I was actually quite impressed with it. It's actually one of my, one of the better Amy readers uh, scripted stories in my view. Uh, I, I wasn't a huge fan of her amethyst, but I liked what she did here. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the insets of the stars because I, I thought that worked really well also. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. Up next, we have what I think is probably my favorite story uh, in the uh, anthology, the one by Mark Wade with Jose uh, Luis Garcia Lopez art. This is the one that feels kind of most like a just a classic Justice League Wonder Woman story to me. And I mean... Jose, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez is an absolute, absolute legend. So Great in this story, Wonder Woman is, uh, she's just doing her thing, you know, as a member of the justice league and, and the other members of the justice league are constantly coming to her and asking her questions. And to, to the point where she gets tired of it a little bit at the end. And when Superman comes to ask for advice, she kind of snaps at him. I'm not a vending machine that dispenses life's answers, she says. Oh, <laughs> Superman's kind of taken aback. And so she, she realizes that she's bit Wonder Woman or, or Superman's head off, and she so she flies off on her own. And later in her apartment that night, she holds on to her lasso, and she, she asks it, like, why am I mad about this? Like, what, what it, why am I in a bad mood? What is the, uh, the deal? Why is this bothering me so much? And she realizes that, to, when she's honest with herself, the first step is admitting that she wants to stop giving advice and she realizes that she actually doesn't. Um, she loves the fact that everybody comes to her and she gets a chance to improve the world without throwing a punch or waving her sword just by you know helping out and being there, whether it's for other superheroes or, or anybody else. And so uh, it's it's called Dear Diana is the name of the story in it. I thought that more so than any of the other stories, it reminds us of what is so special about Wonder Woman, despite the fact that she's a warrior and she's very formidable and, you know, has her superpowers. Um, and I don't know if it's 
you know, just because she's the, the, I would say most famous female superhero and that whole identity gets mixed in with being kind of motherly and, uh, and loving and that kind of thing, because she's female. Uh, I, I won't speak to that, but I'll just say it is an aspect of her character. And Mark Wade did an excellent job of reminding that, uh, reminding us of that here in the story. And then, yeah, like I said, the, uh, the JLGL art, absolutely fan- fantastic. Uh, he does the pencils and the colors. I don't, cause there's not a, I don't think there's a colorist listed. Oh, I'm sorry. Trish Mulvihill, yeah. not to, not to shortchange her. She did the color. She did a great job. Fantastic. Joe Prado on inks, Clem Robbins on letters. So yeah, I, I, this was fantastic. Uh, absolutely loved it. So what were your thoughts on this? One, Rocky? I, I, I liked it because it, it, this is, you know, for once, I mean, we all know that Wonder Woman, uh, again, we, we, we just finished criticizing or at least constructively criticizing most story, a lot of Wonder Woman stories that they kind of do the cliche tropey thing that, of course, Wonder Woman shows compassion, that she's always good for a speech here and there, supplicating herself, yada, yada, yada. I actually like Mark Wade's approach here because, you know, there was always, there's always a suggestion in a lot of, a lot of writers will approach Wonder Woman and they'll write her as if it's such a big deal. That she's helping people. It's such a big deal that she's up. It's like, well, actually, no, it's just being there for somebody. And the best bit of self-help advice I ever got was whenever you're feeling down, help somebody. Offer to help somebody. Go help a neighbor. Help a brother. Help a friend. Just be there for someone. Like if you're feeling down or depressed, you'd be surprised how helping somebody else makes you feel better. And I kind of like the feel good of this. It's like, dear Diana, Wonder Woman didn't realize until I mean, she she felt like foolish at the end when she wraps her 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 hands in the strands of the magic lasso, where the truth was revealed to her, like that she like you said she she wants to help people. If she doesn't want to help them, she can choose not to, but she chooses to because it makes her feel good. Yet at the same time, ironically enough, she would she could find herself getting frustrated. But that's true of all of us. This is a message for everyone. You don't need to be a Wonder Woman or a Wonder Man to appreciate the message here. It's just it's feel good. And it's and it's well done. And plus, I really like the, how it shows the team, uh, how the the team dynamic of the Justice League. This is a league that knows each other, that talks to each other. They're not they they don't hold grudges against each other. They're there for each other. Overall, I mean, this is Mark Wade. This is just a touchstone of Mark Wade that I'm really hoping we get more of this. This is just Mark Wade telling a feel good story about Wonder Woman. I'm really hoping that as I'm hoping he's going to have more of a role uh, in the DC universe moving forward. It, I I think that's going to happen. But I hope that's the case because notwithstanding, Mark Wade might have somewhat of a checkered past in, in, in our real world. But uh, I love him as a writer and I, 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 hope to, I hope to see more of him moving forward. Yeah, it's hard to argue that he doesn't absolutely love the DCU and maybe has more institutional knowledge of DC Comics than any writer out there. So to have him on a Superman book or uh, or Justice League book sure would be a win in my, in my opinion, but yeah, I, I, guess I we'll agree. See. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, a story that's set in the sixties by uh, writer, Tom King, Evan doc Shaner on art, Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, and it's, it's wonder woman in her kind of mod era where she doesn't necessarily have powers. You know, she's, she's the, the spy out of costume and uh, it's Superman and wonder woman. Well, Clark Kent and Diana Prince, I should say going out on a date. And uh, the stories, you know, whatever it, they act the way you kind of expect them to act, and and you know, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for them to have some kind of long term relationship uh, based on where they are in their lives at, at this particular time. 
But what I absolutely loved about the story was the the scripting that Tom King did, like the vocabulary, the the, the context of the language and the slang. He yeah. captured the '60s, and, <laughs> and you know, Tom King's like my my age, right? He he was not alive in the in the '60s. He uh, he was born in the '70s, and so he clearly did his his research. Um, and it was it was just fun. It was just so fun to hear Lois and Diana and to a lesser extent Clark speak in the kind of the, the slang or the vernacular of the sixties. Um, I, I, I just loved it. I thought it was so fun. And, uh, the art by Doc Shaner, I mean, he's, a, he, he's got a timeless art style. Fantastic. And he uses, yeah, he uses a little bit less. This style isn't as, as classically clean as you've I've seen his art be before, but that's, it suits the story really, really well. Uh, so yeah, I thought the, the color work, the, the choice of vocabulary, the words basically that Tom King is putting in these characters mouth, <laughs> this one, uh, yeah, this one was a lot of fun. What'd you yeah, think Rocky? I, I agree. And I, I love the message at the end here because Lois Lane, basically the premise is Lois Lane. Uh, this is, is set in the sixties at a time when Lois Lane in the continuity of this story clearly does not know that Clark Kent is Superman. Clark Kent is frumpy. He's mild mannered. He's boring. And Lois Lane sort of scoffs, but she's going to set Clark up on a date with a friend of hers named Diana. Of course, we, we, we know that's obviously Wonder Woman and they go out on a date and obviously Diana and Clark obviously know each other, uh, but they go through the motions. But at some point, even Clark even says to Diana, well, maybe we should give it a shot. You know, you never know. And Diana says to him, well, that's ridiculous. You know, we're, we're two different people. And, and Diana says something and, and the, the entire theme of the story can be summed up when Diana says to uh, Clark, and, and I, I echo your comments, how Tom King really nails it here. You know, people, Tom King might have his detractors, but the guy's really good at gun in one stories at times. You know, I'm reminded of his Batman annual number two, which was stellar. This is another time where I think his, his, his scripting shines through when Diana says, cause I think this is an, an interesting take on Wonder Woman in the sixties. She says, I'm Paradise Island. I'm the one person who saw paradise and ran away from it for better or for worse. I'm, I'm what the whole new generation is chasing so hard. I'm free. And I just love that. And then Clark says, well, what am I? And of course, well, you're a cop. <laughs> and that's exactly what Superman is. you know. And the idea that Diana represents that generation, and I think this is applicable even to the modern day. Diana represents uh, human beings that that she, she is so completely at, at peace with herself. She accepts who she is. She really is free. She doesn't need to live in paradise to have a life of paradise. And that's what she brings forward and that's her message. And Superman is the cop. Superman is the guy to ensure that we don't get hurt along the way while we're enjoying our freedoms. And <laughs> I think that, that that simple message in this story is what I got out of it. And I think the dialogue, I think, makes it relatively clear. And I, I thought it was very well done. This is my favorite story with the Mark Wade one a close second. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, up next, Better Angels, Vidaella, writer, Isaac Goodhart, art, Jeremy Lawson, colors, John Workman, letters. It's basically a story of Wonder Woman appealing to the better angels of, of Cheetah. We know Cheetah, especially in, in recent times, is more of an anti-hero as opposed to an outright villain like she was, you know, maybe back in the Golden or Silver Age. So Wonder Woman and Cheetah are fighting. The, some innocent bystanders get endangered by some of the damage done to the building during the fight. 
Wonder Woman offers herself up to Cheetah, wraps her wrist in her golden lasso, and then where she has to tell the truth and basically tells Cheetah, help me rescue these people. And when they're all safe, I will surrender to you. You know, and you can have me and my lasso to do with what you will. Um, and then in the end, Cheetah allows Wonder Woman to stay free because she basically says, I, I wouldn't claim a victory at the expense of children. So uh, it's a good, it's a story that's a very good example of kind of the complex relationship between Barbara Minerva and Wonder Woman. Um, and I thought the art by Isaac Goodhart was, was pretty solid. Uh, if I had any nitpick, I, I wish that John Workman, the colorist had chosen to use more primary colors because I think it would have worked that would have allowed the line work to jump off the page a little more. Mm -hmm. He instead uses a muted palette and it makes everything seem kind of flat. Um, but it still was a, a pretty solid story. What do you think, Rocky? Yeah, I, I a good good call there on the colors. Good observation. I felt the same way. It didn't the colors didn't pop off the page like some of the previous stories did? Uh, I will say this: this is this is an actual. This story is the perfect embodiment of Wonder Woman's Rogues Gallery. The cheetah is a perfect embodiment of Wonder Woman's Rogues Gallery, and it is appropriate that she is in this comic. But not I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment because I always find that one of the criticisms of Wonder Woman's rogues gallery is that all her villains are broken in some way, whether it's the cheetah, silver swan, Veronica kale, genocide, war master, Paula von Gunther, Ares, strife, Dr. Psycho, Dr. Poison. All of them are broken in some way. And wonder woman always is healing them. And one and wonder woman in true wonder woman form. I mean, how many other, in how many other dynamics in the superhero comics do you see the good guy, surrender himself uh and basically say to the say to the bad guy yeah go ahead and beat me up uh i believe that i don't think you're going to do that i believe you're going to change your mind and help me save these people well cheetah does that but i i just find that a little bit tropey and it's typical wonder woman don't get me wrong it's typical wonder woman but it's 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 just too convenient it's too convenient all her villains are broken in some way and as opposed to just plain being wonder woman needs more villains that are just plain badass and aren't going to just back down because children are present or what have you but i'm a little bit on my soapbox right now i apologize but uh this is but this is actually a perfect example of wonder woman's writing and how writers approach wonder woman and how they've always approached the cheetah and why i've never really been a big fan of the cheetah because she just cheetah is the villain that just can't make up her mind do I want to be good or do I want to be bad? And it's the same tropes every time a writer approaches Cheetah, and I'm just kind of tired of it after a while, to be honest. But I, again, I can't I can't fault the writer here, Vito Ayala. She nails the dynamic between Wonder Woman and Cheetah. But I, ironically enough, I do think that's one of the dynamics that I think Wonder Woman to be more popular as a character moving forward. That's something that Wonder Woman has yet to have her year one. She has yet to have her All Star Superman moment, and she's due. It's been a long time, and she's never had it yet. Fingers are crossed we'll have it in the next 80 years at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you're definitely calling out something that I think is a problem at DC. It doesn't seem to be so much at Marvel, but DC can't help but at some point turn every one of their heroes or every one of their villains into a hero. Mm -hmm. uh, they did it with Lex Luthor. They did it with Darkseid even, putting him on the Justice League. It's like, yeah. <laughs> no, sometimes just let a bad guy be a bad guy, unrepentantly so. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's annoying at times. Uh, anyway, next story, Saturn Rising, Steve Orlando, Laura Braga on art, Romulo Fajardo Jr. Colors, Becca Carey Letters. This is the, much like the last one, even more so, uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah. 
the requisite Wonder Woman as an ambassador story, right? So Wonder Woman sitting around talking to Nubia and Hippolyta and Artemis, and they're each talking about this uh, kind of emissary of, of Saturn that comes to Earth every so often and is a prelude to an invasion, and it's up to the Amazons to stop it. And it happens at a certain time when the planets are aligned or whatever. And, and they're all talking about now it's going to be Diana's t- turn for the first time to fight out this invasion. And Diana comes walking into their, uh, their meal saying, actually, you guys got it wrong. The planets aligned last week and I didn't fight at all. I resolved this conflict by talking because it turns <laughs> out these emissaries that are sent don't really want to fight at all. They're doing it under duress by from under orders from this terrible ruler that is subjugating Saturn and, and the people that live there. And so once again, Wonder Woman finds the, the peaceful solution through her ambassadorship. And like I said, it kind of, you have to have a story like this when it comes to Wonder Woman. Uh, but because of that, it, it, there's no surprises here. It's, is it well done? Is it a technically good comic? Is the art spectacular? Are the colors good? Yes. On all accounts, yeah. but predictable. Yes. <laughs> And, you know, just at the end of the day, not really anything special, uh, but gorgeous to look at. I, I agree. Uh, predictable for sure. Uh, typical Wonder Woman. And and again, I, I think it's tropey, but honest to God, I, I wish it wasn't tropey. I wish this felt new and fresh, but the story is just, we've seen this so many times. In an 80th anniversary compilation, it's appropriate that it's here because this is literally representative of so many Wonder Woman stories where she's always the one, you know, always, it's always, I, I hate to say it and, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not one to harp on the gender thing and whatever, get it, because it's, that's part of Wonder Woman's mythology, that's part of who she is, but, you know, even here, it's like this Saturn, this Saturnette who comes from Saturn, you know, it's not Saturnette's fault, no, no, it's the evil man who's running, who's ruling Saturn, and even Saturna, you know, the, a, a male a version of Saturnette that, that initially attacks Wonder Woman, he, he doesn't seem, he's not part of the picture, you know, it's, it's always the, the, the bad guy I find very often is defined by by gender, and it's often men. and And I even find that what I find really funny, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna plant this out there, and then I'll back away from it. But there's there's a number of stories in here that I, I never identified it. But when Wonder Woman actually refers to the world as man's world, and it's so funny, I can't believe that more people don't call that out. I think that's so. I in this in this particular world, I can't believe Wonder Woman would, would how insulting to the majority of women who live on the planet Earth to refer to an entire planet as man's world when the majority of life forms on it are female, and she and her and the Amazons continue to do so. And I, I and I know it's part of their mythology. I get it, but at the same time, it's it's something that even writers continue to to focus on. And it's just it's another way to embrace embrace those tropes. And I've yet to see a writer really take take that by the horns and to move the character forward uh, in, in, a, in a meaningful way to truly embrace equality. Because I think in many ways, Wonder Woman does not embrace that to the extent that I think she she could. And I mean that in the, in the best possible light. I don't mean that to raise any, wrinkle any feathers. I just think that this character is amazing and she, and she saves and helps so many people. And uh, I think that, uh, I think what she brings to the table could be a little bit more equally uh, distributed between the genders. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, really when you're saying man's world, you're talking about broken, it's a broken world. 
and, and you know they always saw men as the harbingers of war and whatnot. So, but yeah. I get what I get what you're saying. The point is, let's move beyond that at this point. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I get it. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, Immortal Mysteries by writer Stephanie Phillips, uh, Marcio Takara on art, Marcel Mayall on colors, Rob Lee on letters. Uh, so Wonder Woman's been around for a long, long time. In case you guys forgot, uh, <laughs> she's a dem- demigod. So here we have our requisite story to remind us of that with uh, a professor of uh, of humanities and and uh, Pro- Professor art. Barnes is her name. Professor Barnes. Yeah. Yeah, and she teaches uh, humanities and, and archaeology at a at a university, and so we get a story about Demeter and immortality and godhood and that sort of thing. And so, again, felt like a, a requisite story that belongs in a Wonder Woman, um, a Wonder Woman 80th anniversary. So it, it was fine. Again, I didn't think there was anything special about it. Thought the art was kind of muddy, um, but. You know, Stephanie Phillips, I'm a fan. So the, the voice of Wonder Woman, the voice of this archaeologist, that all felt very, very true to me. Um, so I didn't mind the story, although, like I said, I feel the art could have been a little bit cleaner. But uh, another one that, you know, felt like a requirement to be in here and, and didn't really do anything new or, you know, break any barriers or anything like that. It was just a just an OK story. Yeah, I I, I'm going to be a little bit more critical on this one because this is one where, you know, uh, Zeus grants this boyfriend uh, uh, eternal life, but they, they confuse eternal life with eternal youth. So the boyfriend is granted eternal life, but not eternal youth. So he grows really old and eventually he, his body decays and everything else, but he can't die because he's not granted eternal youth. And at the end, I would think it would be an act of mercy for Wonder Woman to finally use her influence for the power of the magic lasso to at least allow him to die, but she doesn't. And uh, and even when Demeter uh, uh, was going to destroy this 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 boyfriend who kept alive forever and, and becoming immortal, it's like a curse of immortality. Wonder Woman takes this creature, or this you know undead, can't die creature back to paradise island so it can live forever and i'm thinking how torturous is that how is that showing mercy and kindness to this let this creature die so i kind of like like wonder woman i don't know if you're doing this i don't know if you're doing this uh, this creature any favors but uh but i actually uh, i will say this about uh writer stephanie phillips here she kind of made me think i thought it was kind of an interesting topic the difference between eternal life and eternal youth and how that could and you mentioned it earlier, uh, Jace, about how it's isn't it funny how Amazons are immortal, but yet they seem to they seem to age to they seem to get to the age of twenty five and then they stop aging. So it's, apparently there's an unwritten rule that you can age until you're a young adult and then you stop aging. But nobody really knows the rules of immortality. But uh, it's whatever looks better for you know uh, in the on the printed page of comic books. Apparently, but it's uh, that's why we have to suspend our disbelief when we read these uh, wonderful uh, pulp products. But uh, I, I had fun with this, and I, you know, it made me sort of uh, chuckle a little bit at Wonder Woman's choices. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I agree, and that is a good point. It might have been more merciful to let the thing die or be destroyed or, or whatever. So, uh, the last story in here, Lower Bit G Willow Wilson, Megan Hetrick. Um, again, a reminder that Wonder Woman is immortal, and basically, the story set far in the future when Earth is kind of on its last legs and there's a few survivors living in a satellite 
that's orbiting the Earth in low orbit, and, and there's sort of a disaster on the satellite that causes it to start falling from the sky, and Wonder Woman shows up to, to help save the day, and people are kind of surprised. Oh, we thought she was a myth, um, but no, she's she's still around, and she'll be around for a long time. So uh, one of the better stories... Um, the art was a little bit on the simplistic side, very kind of animation inspired without a lot of detail. Uh, and I, I wonder if um, a different artistic choice with more detail might have lent a little more uh, feeling of stakes. Because although it is pretty big stakes, you never really feel like it's that serious that these few remnants of, of humanity that are left are really in danger um, just based on the art style. Uh, but overall, it was a solid story. I mean, I, I am a fan of G. Willow Wilson. I think she's very talented. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just a reminder that, that Wonder Woman's immortal. She's been around for uh, a long time. I think a lot of people yeah, forget hope. that, you know. Yeah, hope hope springs eternal, and it, uh, especially when you're immortal. But, uh, yeah. yeah, this I thought the, the colors here were also a little bit mooted, which you sort of hinted at. Yeah. Uh, obviously, this is a... The Earth isn't blue here, so I don't think it's supposed to be because it's a destroyed Earth from climate change, and it looks almost more like Mars than it does to planet Earth. And uh, but it's a story of hope, and I again, sort of the ones that you'd sort of expect to see on a more of an anthology than than this. Uh, um, you know, this is I would have preferred to see more of a, a tribute to Wonder Woman in one of the decades. Like go going, you know, this seemed to be like a future Wonder Woman, which we're celebrating eighty years. We're not celebrating the next eighty years. So I would have. This is the type of story that I would have rejected for this book because I don't think the story is appropriate. But again, I'm nitpicking. But you know, that's that's what that's what I'm doing and I'm reviewing. So, <laughs> but I <Yeah. laughs> I wouldn't have I wouldn't have picked this story for this compilation. Quite frankly, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's suitable for it because it's just not it's not indicative. Uh, but but again, it's is it. It is from a thematic point of view. It does focus on hope, and in that regard, it does have a nice. It does have a nice message. Yes. Yeah. Again, I have to. I mean, so ultimately, it ends up being kind of an average anthology for me. Nothing that really stands out. Are there some good stories? Yes, there are some good stories, but you know, this isn't a must-read or a must-buy. And I, I go back to something I said at the beginning, talking about just the amount of anthologies DC's putting out right now. Are they running out of? It, it's hard to. I would, it's hard enough to do a 20-page comic, right? And so oftentimes that people are uh, they're struggling to cut the story down to fit 20 pages. Now you got to cut it down to fit eight pages or 10 pages or whatever it is that DC decides they're going to give you, whatever amount of real estate. Um, <laughs> so it's a challenge. And the fact that they're doing more and more of these means we have to have more and more of these shorter stories. And I think it's a, it's a challenge. So again, I implore you, DC editorial <laughs> – Cut down on the amount of anthologies, which I sound hypocritical. Like we've talked about that in the past. How do you increase sales for you know maybe try doing some anthologies? Okay, you now you're now you've the pendulum swung too far to the other side in my my opinion. So I think they need to dial back on the anthologies uh, a little bit. So well, there, there's another anthology, but I'm not sure. Are, are we reviewing it? Uh, it's called "Are We Afraid of Dark Side?" Are, are we? Yeah, that? We'll, we'll we'll talk about it. I don't know if we need to go story by story unless you okay. think. Well, we can we can talk about it yeah. now, I guess. I I don't know if. Uh, uh, yeah. So I, I let me give the the credits, and then we'll, we'll 
we'll, okay. talk, we'll talk about it. So, yeah, Are You Afraid of Dark Side? So this is basically DC's Halloween anthology with a bunch of quote-unquote horror stories or scary stories, and it's all in the framework of, of the Teen Titans, the um, the Damian Wayne-led Teen Titans are out on a camping trip, and they're sitting around the campfire and telling scary stories, right? So that time-honored tradition and – you know, this is the time of year and blah, blah, blah. So the framing story, Are You Afraid of Dark Side, is written by Elliot Kalin, who, if you're a longtime listener to the podcast, you'll know that he, we interviewed him. He's the writer for Maniac of New York, which is a, a title that we absolutely love here from Aftershock. First five-issue arc's already out. Second five-issue arc will be coming out next year. So he does the framing sequence. Mike Norton is the artist. Alan Pasalacqua is the color artist. Simon Bolin does letters. And I know Alan personally, and I have to say, I, I, he has my favorite name in all of comics. I just love saying Pasalacqua. Uh, <laughs> and he's a super fun guy to hang out and drink with. But anyway, uh, <laughs> the other story, the actual stories the Teen Titans sit around and tell in that framing sequence, we have a Harley Quinn and Dark Side story called Bloody Mary from Kenny Porter with art by Max Dunbar, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Becca Carey. There's a Batman and Mad Hatter story called Backseat Killer, written by Calvin Casaluca, uh, with art by Rob Guillory, who was the artist from Chew. Uh, Luis Guerrero also does the colors on that. Simon Bolin on letters. There's a John Stewart story from Dave Welgaz, who is also an editor at DC in addition to being a writer. Uh, the art is by Pablo M. Collar. Colors by Will Quintana and letters by Dave Sharp. There's a Phantom Stranger story called The Endless Staircase, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lanzig. Jesus Harvas is the artist. Ava Dela Cruz does colors and Clint Robbins on letters. Aquaman and Aqualad in Ogo Pogo, written by Ed Brisson, with art by Christopher Mitten, colors by Tony Avina, letters by Becca Carey. A Wonder Woman and Vixen story called Black Eyed Kids, written by Terry Bloss. Gary Brown is the artist. Marisa Louise on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. And then finally, the last story is Superman and Lois Lane. There's a story by Jeremy Hahn called The Cellar which has Tony Atkins' pencils. Moritat does the inks and colors, and Troy uh, Petrie does the letters. Okay, I am not a fan of Halloween. I never have been a fan of Halloween. Sure, when I was a kid, candy, candy, candy. I love candy as much as the next kid. I would just go out and get candy. But the whole dressing up part and the spooky, scary, nonsense, whatever – no, it's never been for me. I've never really been a fan of horror or horror comics in the last, I don't know, six or seven years. I have become more of a fan of well-written horror comics. I mean, a good written story is a good written story. And certainly a movie that is a suspenseful movie or a thriller can certainly get me interested if it's done well. I'm still not a fan at all of any kind of body horror or gory or slasher films or whatever. It just seems stupid and fake and tropey to me. And it's just, it's not a thing. And, as much as I've never been a fan of Halloween, it's gotten even worse. Like this is the year where I feel like I've hit my absolute limit. Like, yeah. like apparently Halloween last year, like filled me up to the top where I'm at the point where I'd be happy if we just skipped Halloween and the skeletons and the spiders and all the nonsense, like all together. <laughs> if, the, if there's a word like, you know, like the Grinch who stole Christmas, if there's a, an appropriate <laughs> word for that, as it applies to Halloween, that is me. Um, so that's just my personal thing. I know plenty of people that love Halloween. They love getting dressed up. Well, we have year-round cosplay now, so it's like 
that shouldn't even necessarily if you want to dress up just dress up it doesn't need to be halloween but whatever that's neither here nor there there are plenty of people that love halloween it's their favorite holiday i don't begrudge that great halloween can exist it's just not for me and so when i saw this oh, are you afraid of dark side it's a halloween anthology i gotta read all these supposedly scary stories it just wasn't for me i, I read them all and even when i was going through right now and giving all the credits and i was trying to think okay which which is my favorite which would I recommend somebody read? Which should I like the best? I can't even pick one. Like none of these sp stories spoke to me. Um, I, 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 th I guess I thought the art was pretty good in the John Stewart story. Uh, I also like the art in the the Phantom Stranger story. I wanted to like the Phantom Stranger story because he's such a an obscure character that doesn't get used that often. Um, so I wanted to like it, but I can't even say that that was the one that that did it for me. Um, so yeah, this just, I mean, as somebody who's not a Halloween guy at all, uh, I just didn't enjoy this. So if you're, if you're not into Halloween at all, like me, stay far away from this. You won't, you won't like it. I, I guess if you do like Halloween, maybe it evokes that feeling of fall and, and scary stories and spookiness or whatever. It's just, it is not for me at all. So, uh, I guess it was my turn to go on a rant, Rocky, uh, so, so. <laughs> to get this label as being anti-Halloween. It's just, I'm not anti-Halloween. I want Halloween to exist because my daughter loves Halloween and I know there's plenty of other people out there. I just don't want to have to participate in any of it. So anyway, what did you think? Are you a Halloween guy? Do you love Halloween? Uh, I, I, I don't mind it. I, I don't mind Halloween. I just, I'm not generally a big fan of Halloween comic books because I'm not generally a big fan of the compilations. I'm, I'm not a big fan of anthologies in general, frankly, but uh, what... One of the things that throws me here about, you know, the, the whole name of this uh, compilation, Are You Afraid of Darkseid? You know, I, I actually, this kind of treats Darkseid like a joke. And I actually thought that this entire anthology was going to focus on Darkseid, but only one of the stories does, and that's uh, called Bloody Mary. And that's the first one written by uh, uh, Kenny Porter and uh, with really good art by Max Dunbar. It's actually not a bad story. It's basically this this character that used to be a, a member of uh, the, uh, uh, with Granny Goodness is there, the female Furies, and ends up getting sucked into a, like a, a like a big box or a a boom boom tube of or mother box of some kind, and it, and it really twists her and makes her into this sort of evil creature uh, that that the children can call upon when they look in a mirror and say Bloody Mary three times, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, and then Bloody Mary appears and. Ultimately, Harley Quinn, with the help of Darkseid, Darkseid comes along, uses his Omega beams to empower Harley Quinn's hammer. Harley Quinn smashes one of the shards of glass, the shards of mirror that doesn't have Bloody Mary's reflection on it, and it basically traps Bloody Mary into the Mirror Master universe, where she meets Mirror Master at the end. So, for for guys, so just cutting to the chase here where I think there's two stories here that people might want to pay attention to, and maybe this is more of a speculator alert, and that is the, the Bloody Mary story. This is, I believe this is the first appearance of Bloody Mary, so that might be something worth looking into. It ends a little bit on a cliffhanger because I think Mirror Master is now going to be maybe having a partner with Bloody Mary. It's going to be interesting to see if we, maybe we'll see her in the pages of The Flash. Who knows? Because Mirror Master is a rogues gallery member of the... Member of Flash's Rogues Gallery. The other story, and you mentioned it, was the story by, um, it's the one with uh, John Stewart. And what's interesting about that is that John Stewart, uh, John Stewart ends up, uh, bef 
essentially befriending an entity, saving an entity that, uh, just like him, this, en- this, this entity can create cities out of, uh, out of itself. And this, uh, this particular entity, it's called Escape from the Dark Fortress. This entity, entity used to be part of a sort of a, a very evil civilization. And the, the civilization left this, left this, uh, dark fortress, but never returned. So this entity that created all these buildings and created this architecture for this ancient civilization that is gone, it now needs a, a reason to exist. And, and John Stewart, of course, is an architect and he utilizes this creature at the end to, to help create a sanctuary for wayward Green Lanterns. And so we might see, so it's possible, I think, that uh, this this Dark Fortress, I, I'm not sure if this, this entity even has a name, uh, but uh, this this Dark Fortress is something that we might see in Green Lantern lore. Uh, in the, you know, it's uh, writer Dave Wellgaz, uh does a good job here of, of creating this new character, this Dark Fortress that we might see in the pages of uh, Green Lantern. Um, beyond that, some of the other the backseat killer story with Batman, it's it's a it's kind of a funny story. It basically has um, Mad Hatter, uh, Mad Hatter. He Batman chases down Mad Hatter, and it's kind of funny. Mad Hatter hides in the Batmobile, but Batman doesn't know that. And then this semi trailer comes out of nowhere and basically pushes. Long story short, pushes the Batmobile off the road, and it ends up. And then this semi 18 wheeler just disappears into the night and it's only by being swerved off the road when batman gets out of the batmobile that he sees that mad hatter was hiding behind him in the batmobile ready to stab him and so this this ghost semi truck saved batman's life and that's why they called backseat killer because and then it ends up that this this semi trailer crashed many years before according to oracle so it's like ooh, you know it's like really scary stuff but in any event stories like that i mean you know, again, it's if you're just looking for snapshot stories, it's not bad. But I, you know, I I would you could probably give it a pass. But if you're diehard on the speculation, yeah, if you're if you're really into comic book speculation, the first appearance of Bloody Mary and the uh, the I guess the 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 dark the dark fortress, it might be might be some first appearances. You might want to pick this uh, pick this up. Yeah, I'm still skipping it. <laughs> okay, so the next one we do Batman 114. Okay, written by writer James Tynan, Jorge Jimenez is the artist, Tomeo More on the colors, Clayton Cowell on the letters. This is uh, obviously the next portion of the Fear State event that's going on right now. And there's also a, a backup story with Clown Hunter. I think this is part two or part three that's written by Brandon Thomas with art by Jason Howard. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, actually, it's part it's part three of three. Uh, it's the final final uh, part of the backup. So uh, anyway, what do you think of the main story, Rocky? Uh, well, the main story it, it's it's interesting. We it's funny because the last issue we read it was basically uh, well we reviewed the the origin of Miracle Molly. Miracle Molly shows up in this issue, and she is actually. Uh, this issue starts off with Miracle Molly actually talking to uh, Poison Ivy, and she's uh, and and Poison Ivy, who is of course she's now Poison Ivy has got like her two halves. She's got sort of like her poison part, or I guess her Ivy part, <laughs> and and Poison Ivy is she's 
she's tr- she's getting to know Miracle Molly and Poison Ivy is not a big fan on technology with, with technology. She doesn't really like technology, but Miracle Molly is getting a little bit. Uh, uh, she 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 needs to tinker because Miracle Molly is into tech and and she's she's figured out Miracle Molly sort of figures out that uh, that how the scarecrow is is likely going to be infecting Gotham and she so Miracle Molly essentially takes off to try to tell she wants to find Batman to tell Batman you know I, I think I figured out how how Scarecrow is doing this to all the people of Gotham City. I was a little bit surprised because I thought sort of Batman already figured it out with the toxin, but Miracle Molly, uh, writer James Tynion has given Miracle Molly a lot of agency here because she's he's really portraying her as very intelligent. Some of the questions that I had in in the Batman Secret Files Miracle Molly, which I thought was a was a very interesting scripted story by James Tynion, and I thought I think that Miracle Molly is a is a little bit of a controversial figure, but very interesting in my mind. But she makes it clear here that. You know, she talks. She talks about a mind machine, sort of how you know to try to overcome your trauma, and that these mind. You know, if only any everybody could benefit from a mind machine that, that Master Y, her Master Wise, has to remove the trauma from their lives, so they could see see clearly and realize that it's the systems. It's not the people of Gotham's fault that they're misguided. It's the systems that keep us down. The government systems, the corporate systems. It's all this stuff that's keeping us down. And Poison Ivy is really Queen, Queen Ivy. This is in her domain. This is, they're in Eden. This is below the streets of Gotham in a place called Eden, created by Queen Ivy. This is her domain. And you got to treat Queen Ivy with respect. And of course, Queen Ivy actually likes Miracle Molly. Despite my Miracle Molly's obsession with tech, and and very clearly, uh, Miracle Molly then dis- figures out she, she figures out what's wrong and she needs to go find Batman to do it. Meanwhile, the rest of the issue consists of I mean the I gotta say the art here is is really really good. The rest of the issue consists of Simon Saint. Simon Saint wants to stop Peacemaker. Uh, Sean Mahoney, Peacema- who's Peacemaker One, is is infected with the with the Scarecrow toxin. And Simon Saint is sent Peacemaker X to take out Peacemaker 1, but hopefully do it without killing him because Simon Saint doesn't want to lose two good soldiers. Uh, And there's some great fight sequences here. Beautiful art. Sean Mahoney, Peacekeeper 1, is so badly infected with the uh, Scarecrow talk, fear toxin, that him and Peacemaker X basically essentially fight to the death. And despite Batman's best efforts, he can prevent that fight from creating havoc and ultimately destroying an entire uh, Gotham City block. The art here is just absolute. Again, it's just fantastic. The colors pop off the page. The action sequences are great. You can see, you can feel the brutality of the fight between Peacekeeper uh, One and Peacekeeper X. And Peacekeeper X doesn't even want. He respects Sean Mahoney. He doesn't want to kill him. But Simon Saint initially doesn't. But the, initially doesn't want to kill him. But then Simon Saint shows his true colors and says, "Ah, screw it. Kill him if you can't take him out." Simon Saint is worried. He's worried that all the evidence of all the of the armor is going to be used against them. So when it's clear that Simon, uh, when it's clear that Peacekeeper One is going to win, and that all this, all these police, all these peacekeepers that are on the streets of Gotham, all their armor, it's a lot of evidence that could be used against them because he's he's violating the the uh, the mandate given to him by Mayor Nagano by abusing his power, and so he he creates an explosion to destroy all the evidence, and 
And just as he does that near the end, that's when uh, that's when Mir- Miracle Molly shows up and tells Batman, I know what Scarecrow is up to. And this is, again, this is, this is really a, an adrenaline rush of an issue. Not a heck of a lot of story progression other than the fact we just get to the, finally get to the end of the Peacekeeper 1 and Peacekeeper X fight. Batman's caught in the middle. Big explosion. And Miracle Molly shows up and says, I know what the Scarecrow is doing. But I really like this. This is, uh, this is that, this is, when you get to the part of the trade paperback that is this story, people are going to be loving it because there's a lot of it's a lot of action packed, a lot of a lot of action packed in this issue. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of action here. Uh, I think you covered it pretty well. You mentioned all the things I was going to mention. A lot of agency for Miracle Molly. She's quickly becoming one of my one of the characters that James Tynan has created that I, I think has more, maybe even more potential than Ghostmaker. So every, every every time I learn more about Miracle Molly, it makes her, me like her more and more. So I'm a big fan of her. Love her. Uh, love what James Tynan does with her in this issue. Uh, clear that she's brilliant. You know, I would love to see maybe in the future like uh, a Barbara Gordon, whether as Batgirl or as Oracle, team up with Miracle Molly and you know have them put their brains together to to take down some uh, you know I don't know Lex Luthor plot or some other genius. Uh, supervillain that would be uh, fantastic because i think she's on that level with with oracle um you're right about simon saint as well you know when push comes to shove what did you think was going to happen simon saint (laughs) like like, you know none of this is surprising to me um and it, it whenever fascists try to take power and you know they use violence and and force as a means of enforcing their actions um this is what comes of it. You know, this, this isn't a surprise. So I, I do like that Tynan is, is showing us that here. Um, it seems that Simon Saint is a little surprised by this. Oh, dang it. Batman's on the, on the trail. Now we've got to kill peacekeeper one. Cause we can't let that evidence fall into Batman's hands. Like what you t- teamed up with Scarecrow, you created all the, this uh, militarized, force to, to try to take over Gotham. What did you, this is exactly what is going to happen when you do that. These kind of people <laughs> never learn their lesson for, you know, all the genius of Simon Saint. So nice to see him have it backfire on him as, as expected. So I guess we'll see how that all, uh, that all plays out. Um, again, I, you know, I hate to mention it, but I'm going to anyway, uh, just how much more interesting this story would be because all along, right. When peacekeeper one and peacekeeper X are fighting, because we've already read Future State and Sean Mahoney's there, we know who wins this fight between Peacekeeper X and Peacekeeper 1. So, yeah. again, the <laughs> fact that Future State exists kind of detracts from the story a little bit in, in my mind. Uh, but overall, a, a solid issue. I felt it was, you know, we, we, t- we talked about these first couple issues of Batman Fear State as not advancing the story along really quickly. And I've, I've talked about it even to the point of saying, well, could Fear State have been shorter? Could they be doing more? Um, and, and that that portion of Fear State is is interesting to me. Like the pace, it almost feels like since Fear State has started, the pacing of these Fear State tie-ins, the individual books, the pacing has slowed down a little bit rather than speeding up. Despite the fact that, in place of moving the narrative forward quickly, at least we're getting a lot of action and brilliantly drawn by Jorge Jimenez, as you mentioned. So don't mind it necessarily um as far as the backup story um brandon thomas with clown hunter here i guess 
positive in a way in terms of, I guess Tim Drake's going to train Clown Hunter now. It's kind of the impression that I get. And we've talked about the fact Clown Hunter hasn't really had any training and, and certainly needs it. So I, I guess that's a positive, but <laughs> I still don't like Clown Hunter and this still felt really, it, it did this story, like, I don't still don't understand why this story existed. Um, I, I, yeah. It didn't need to in my mind. Do, yeah. do, do we need a three-part backup story <laughs> to tell us that Tim Drake was going to train Clown Hunter and uh, it's going to be continued in the pages of Batman and Batman Urban Legends? You could have just started te- started telling the story in Batman Urban Legends. Hey, Tim Drake is training Clown Hunter, and we all would have nodded our head and going, well, it's about time because he needs it. He's going to get himself killed. So I don't know why we needed this crazy psychedelic story to, to get there, but apparently somebody at DC thought we did, so. Whatever. Yeah, I, I agree with you on the Clown Hunter backup. First of all, Batman wasn't able to convince Clown Hunter to, to not kill. Uh, Harley Quinn was unable to convince Clown, Clown Hunter to not kill. Uh, he seemed uh, he seemed pretty aggressive and angry toward Punchline in, in the, uh, this, I think, the first issue of the, ba- the first backup of Clown Hunter. We're in the third, this is the third issue with Clown Hunter as the backup. And now... I don't. I think it's out of character for Tim Drake as Red Robin to to train. I don't think Tim Drake would want to train this guy. Why? Like, there's nothing about him. Well, he even he even gives him back his weapon and goes, "Yeah, this isn't I, what I would use, but here you go. Here's your yeah. weapon. Here's your lethal weapon back." Yeah, it's like you know. And I've I, I sort of made this joke before, and I, I realize we're. T- I've said before. I know we're talking about the Batman family, and they're all a little bit off the rocker, but. Like they, the the bar keeps getting lowered and lowered and lowered. I mean, at what point? And they they might as well just hire people right out of Arkham Asylum to be their sidekicks. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, Clown Hunter is this kid is just this kid is walking PTSD as far as I'm concerned, and he's a murderer. And he and I I just don't, you know, I I just I um I just cannot believe that this feels so forced to me. And I gotta say, like I've been. Uh, I'm fairly defensive. I will defend uh, James Tinian's characters. I think he's done a really good job adding all these characters. But this is the, the first big miss for me with Clown Hunter. I'm just not a fan of Clown Hunter. I think that this is a this is a this is example of a of a character that you know should be. I mean, if he dropped dead tomorrow, I I just wouldn't care. But but I will say this: full disclosure, I hated Jason Todd. I voted to kill that kid off back in the day. I, I dialed out one nine hundred number and uh, I voted to kill him off. And I never started liking Jason Todd until about five or six years ago. I, uh, so you know, who knows? Maybe in ten, fifteen years, if I'm still alive, maybe then I'll like Clown Hunter. But I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think Tynan has done an overwhelming job. I like all the characters he's created, or, or if I don't outright like them, at least I. I recognize her a quality character. Like I, I'm not particularly fond of punchline, but <laughs> that's because she feels derivative of Joker to me and I'm not a Joker guy, but I, I recognize that she's interesting. She has potential and I think she's a good character, even though I don't personally like her <laughs> clown hunter, I think is just a bad character and, and I don't like him. So, uh, but you know, when you create like 20 characters, you're bound to miss on one. So yeah. again, I'm not, no, no, no uh, judgment on, on Tynan. So, uh, all right. What, what do we have up next? Well, I I think unless I miss my mark, I think it's nice house. Oh no, there's still Swamp Thing number eight. We'll do that one. Yeah, Swamp Thing number eight, written by Ram V as the writer, Mike Perkins on art, Mike Spicer on colors, Aditya Bidikar on letters. Um, I don't really have much to say on this one. I, I read it; it fleshes out um, more with uh, with Levi 
uh, Kamel, and and now we actually learn about his his brother, yeah, Jacob, who's now Hadera, who apparently also got some some powers, and apparently they're going to be nemeses of uh, each other. We see the results of what happened to Parasite when he, you know, went out in the swamp and and sensed that there was power there to be be uh, drained, I guess you'd say, and he's powered up more so than we've ever seen him before with these kind of thorns poking out of him and, and mushrooms growing outside of his legs and, and whatever. So there's a, a big battle between him and, uh, and Swamp Thing. Um, but I, I don't know, other than, than finding out that the brothers are going to be against each other and sort of resolving the suicide squad wanting to hunt down Swamp Thing, which that just felt like a big waste in the end. Um, which I guess it should have, because honestly, when you talk about power level, none of the people on the current su- su- current Suicide Squad are anywhere near Swamp Thing's power level. So that ended as it as it should. And then finally, at the end, we get a little bit of the um, the news about the conspiracy and and these guys that are after Swamp Thing. Um, uh, so that to me is the important part of the piece but we don't know exactly what what the shadowy business conspiracy, how it ties into Levi Kamel's family and all that. I guess that's what the last couple of issues are. So it, it really is strange because the way this is, story has been structured, it feels like Ram V was, was definitely setting up a lot of plot threads for kind of the long game, you know, some really long form storytelling, but it's only 10 issues. Yeah. Um, so even though I, I trust Ram V to give us a satisfying conclusion, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff there that could be explored more that may leave Swamp Thing fans wanting. I'm not a Swamp Thing fan, so I'm not personally worried about it, but I'll be curious to see what other Swamp Thing fans think. And the other part of this is, so is Levi Kamel going to remain Swamp Thing after this is over, after these 10 issues? Or is Alec Holland going to come back? Like, where are we with, with that whole thing? Like, is Swamp Thing an important enough character for DC in terms of licensing or whatever? I mean, we know if Clark Kent or Batman uh, or, or Clark Kent or Bruce Wayne, rather, you know, they, they stop being Superman or Batman, respectively, eventually they'll return to the role because those characters and, and the IP intellectual property of those characters is far too valuable in other media and licensing for, you know, toys and soda and shoes and candy and bed sheets and all that. So, you know, they're always going to return to status quo is Swamp Thing enough of a property that they would want to return Alec Holland. Do people even know that Swamp Thing's uh, alter ego is Alec Holland? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So uh, I'll be, I'll be curious to see that that has, more curiosity for me what might come after this than the actual end of this story. And that's not because I think that Ramvi's not telling a good story. It's just because I'm not really that interested in, in Swamp Thing. Um, but I will say uh, the Mike Perkins art in this issue, uh, especially the double page sp- title spread is yeah. fantastic. Mike, Mike Perkins has given us detailed art from Swamp Thing, even in the future state Swamp Thing. And I feel like now that he's, been drawing Swamp Thing for a while, he has an even better understanding of the character, and he draws him even, even better than he did before. And and one other thing that I'll mention about the artwork, 
I feel like Mike Spicer gave a, a little bit of a brighter color palette. The greens feel richer to me yeah. in this uh, issue than we've had previously yeah. uh, with the art he's doing. And man, I, I really loved it. it. It looked great seeing the brighter green of Swamp Thing yeah. um, contrasted against the purple of Parasite, who also, uh, you know, I mentioned it before, but that overwrought kind of overpowered uh, version of, of Parasite is maybe my favorite and scariest looking version of Parasite I've ever seen. So kudos to the art team all the way around for the line work and the colors. To me, the art, this is the best art we've seen on the Swamp Thing series to date. I guess I had more to say about it than I thought. <laughs> yeah. What did well, you think, Rocky? I, well, um, I, I really enjoyed this. You know, uh, Levi, Levi is the Swamp Thing and his brother Jacob is this new character called Hedera. And their father was, when their father died, remember that Levi went to work for Prescott Industries that wanted essentially to buy this, all this land for their own purposes. And ultimately, this is a, this is a, this is the, the, the father of Levi and Jacob who end up becoming arch enemies, their brothers, but end up becoming arch enemies by the end of this. They represent two opposing forces, one whose Swamp Thing wants to find a middle ground between humanity and nature, just like his father did, because his father forgave Levi before he died. Uh, but Jacob, Jacob can't forgive. And Jacob, uh, you see that in his character of Hedera. He wants, he judges humanity harshly and he thinks that humanity should be destroyed. Meanwhile, they've got the machinations of Amanda Waller, your favorite character, <laughs> and and the Suicide Squad. And and essentially they want to poison the forest first by using chemo and they want to they want to they wanted they use nightmare nurse last issue to try to recruit swamp thing onto their side that failed and now peacemaker tries to tries to attack swamp thing and what i really like about this is that swamp thing appeals uh to peacemaker saying you know uh look uh this is uh, you know how can you you can't have peace if somebody's always trying to control you. And and the Swamp Thing does something brilliant here that I think is very significant for Suicide Squad readers. The Swamp Thing removes the bomb implanted in Peacemaker's head. And he says, this is what I found. This is what she is using. It is what they use to control you, isn't it? I have taken that power from them. My vines will mimic the electrical impulses of a brainstem. It shows them what they expect to see. So the Swamp Thing did Peacemaker a favor. He says, you truly want to make peace? This is your opportunity. Walk away. And uh, one gets the impression that's exactly what Peacemaker does. And Amanda Waller now will not, will not be aware. Her sensors will be fooled into thinking that there's still a bomb in Peacemaker's head. But there isn't. So that's going to be very interesting to see how, what Peacemaker does with that moving forward. And so... Uh, I really like this. I like the connective tissue and I, I, I like the movement of the, I mean, the characters of Levi, of Jacob, of the father. This is a really great, we're eight issues in here and I'm I'm really enjoying this and I'm really curious to see where this is going to go. And I think that for, my God, we're eight issues in and I feel, I, I'm, I'm completely satisfied. And if it ended right now, we got a swamp thing that, uh, that has gravitas. That has this is a this is a good character. I like this character. I really like this Levi, and I like his journey, and I like the concept and the themes of forgiveness and forgiving oneself. And not only do you free yourself, but humanity in the green is what builds up that forgiveness. Just like nature, nature always forgives because nature always prevails. It doesn't matter how much you poison nature; 
it it's it just is N- nature always comes back there's nature never judges anybody nature simply is and there there's a lesson to be had there that i think levi has swamp thing his connection in nature shows him that that that's kind of what forgiveness is and atonement is and it's the same message that his father was trying to give him unfortunately the only the only son that got the message was levi it took him a while to get it, but he did ultimately, It he did finally get the message and it redeemed him and empowered him as Swamp Thing. Unfortunately, his brother Jacob uh, is exploring the darker side. But overall, I'm, I'm quite happy with this series. And, I'm uh, you know, this is, uh, frankly, for this week, uh, this is my second favorite of the week. The My favorite is Nice House on the Lake number five, which we'll, we'll be reviewing next. Yeah, did you well, before we get to Nice House on Lake? Did you read the Arkham City the Order? Should we talk about that? Uh, uh like yes, I, I did actually read it. Yes, we can talk about that. Okay, I I yeah, assume that you it. hadn't, but I'll, I'll bring that yeah, up no, right now. No. Yeah. I I did, and we'll talk about it briefly. Um, so Arkham City the Order of the the World Chapter One, written by Dan Waters, the art is by Danny. Dave Stewart does the colors, Aditya Bidikar and letters. Um, so Danny, she was the artist that did the Miracle Molly last week that I I just. I, couldn't stand the art. This art is, is better. It's still a very messy and muddled style, um, but I, I feel like it's substantially better than we saw in the Miracle Molly. That being said, yeah. I'm still not a fan of it. Um, and this this is such a weird type of story. I mean, clearly it ties into uh, current DC continuity because they're talking about how Arkham Asylum is abandoned now because of A-Day and there's this a uh, doctor who worked at um, at Arkham Asylum called uh, Dr. Jocasta Joy, and she's out there working with the Gotham City Police Department trying to, to catch the inmates of Arkham that, in her mind, still need help. And, you know, they're out there and they don't belong in Blackgate or, or whatever. She wants to try to help them. Um, so, it you know, that all ties in with what happened at the end of uh, or, or what happened at the beginning of the, the Joker series or A-Day or you know, whatever you want to label it happened in the pages of Batman. So this clearly ties in, but yet it feels so separate in a way, both in terms of, of what the art looks like and it, like the, even the cover, when you look at it, it's just, it's so different from what you usually see it. Like it looks more than anything, it looks like some kind of video game tie in, you know, especially because of the Arkham line of, of video games. Um, so all that being said, I thought this was an okay story. I think it's not a big surprise that this is coming out this month. Again, it feels like it. they're trying to go for a little bit of a horror vibe with this art style and, and this idea of uh, the ten-eyed man out there torturing people and, and whatnot. So, you know, I thought I thought this was okay. It didn't, uh, you know, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't think you need to pick it up and buy it unless you're a Batman completist or you're a huge fan of Arkham Asylum or, you know, you like this art. Um, cause it, this just felt kind of meh to me. So it, it didn't feel like anything special. Yeah. It actually reminded me of, uh, Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum graphic novel a little bit. Uh, not, not as good, but I like the fact that this Dr. Jocasta Joy, I, I like that, uh, the scripting, she tries to, she very much has sympathy for the patients. She, she takes her job very, very seriously, too seriously in the opinion, probably of the, of the uh, one detective that she's commiserating with throughout the issue who finally gets tired of her. And he got sick and, and finally says to her at the end, when they come across their third or fourth victim that, you know, look, I have sympathies. I understand you want to help these, these patients, but these are still crazy people that are hurting and killing people and enough already. 
And, but it's clearly something is going on here. And there's this 10 fingered person or this, this 10 eyed person that's got eyes on their fingertips. This is that de- is, there's definitely a strong horror element to this. And I, I like I said, I, I definitely got those vibes too, that this felt like a video game sort of, it would have an interesting video game feel to it. Although admittedly, it doesn't necessarily look like a video game. It, it feels out of continuity. I would never have thought this was in continuity. Uh, sim- well, the only continuity reference is A-Day, uh, which, you know, of course, we were dealing with A-Day and the fallout from that with, with the whole fear state and the future state and everything else. Everything sort of bled into that. But, you know, and there's there's no, there's really no Batman here either. It's just, all, this is all Dr. Jocasta Joy. And I actually like this character. I don't, I don't remember this character. Is this a new character or is this an old one, Jocasta Joy? Do you know, Jace? I don't ever remember hearing about her before, so I, I yeah, I, I don't either. Character, but I, I really like her look. I think she looks cool. I love the white streak in her hair. She kind of looks like a, like an. Uh, she looks like a forty-something, sort of like a sort of a sophisticated, intelligent, but sort of kind of a cool-looking character. I, I really like how she's rendered here, and I really like her confidence. I like the, uh, I, just, I, I'm. I will definitely be getting, be looking forward to the next issue on this. I'm really curious as to the story in terms of what's causing this. What's the, what's, what's going on behind the scenes here. This is a, it's building, it's starting off to be an interesting mystery. I hope it, um, I hope it, I hope it's a well-written mystery at the end. I always say that uh, just because a really bad, a bad mystery is when they don't, you know, the best mysteries are the ones where they give you enough information to figure it out. A bad, a badly written comic book mystery is when they don't give you any information, but they just spring an answer on you at the end, and you could never have figured it out even if you read all the issues. So I'm kind of hoping this turns out to be a well written mystery where we're where we can maybe figure it out uh, as we go. But anyways, uh, I thought it, I think it's worth picking up myself. I I really enjoyed this, and artistically, I just thought I think this has just sort of a a unique look to it. Uh, I yeah, it almost reminds me a little bit like. A little bit like Tim Sale. It's got a Tim Sale, Tim, Tim Sale kind of feel to it. At, yeah, I could, I could see that. I could see that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Last book. Rocky mentioned it earlier. His favorite book of the week. This is my DC book of the week as well. Nice House on the Lake, number five, from writer James Tynan. Alvaro Martinez Bueno does the art and the cover. Jordi Blair on colors. Van World Design does the letters. And we're we're starting to get some more some more clues into into what's going on in the, the larger world of the nice house on the lake. So it was a, it was a good issue. What do you think, Rocky? <laughs> good. I just got a. Um, finally, these these ten people that are brought to the that that were brought to the lake by this. They all had just a quick summary. All these ten people had a mutual friend named Walter, and uh, over the last. Over the last 20 some odd years, this Walter has befriended them at one point or the other and ultimately invited them out to this nice house on the lake. The same weekend that they show up, lo and behold, the world ends, Armageddon. And they, they can never leave this nice house on the lake, but there's no reason to because everything they'd ever want, wanted is supplied to them on this nice house on the lake. Uh, but, but they soon realize that, I mean, they, they can never really leave and Diff- all the different characters involved here they 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 finally in this issue in issue 5 some they finally des- decided to talk to each other and piece together what all of them know cuz each one of them uh knows different secrets about this nice house on the lake and and 
it's what they piece together is well, they piece together the mystery of where they're at because um, they discover that they discover a number of things because all 10 of them put their heads together and they say, okay, let, let's, you know, we all know different things. What do we know? And because they figure out that Walter, this, this alien creature that they thought was their human friend, obviously he's an alien. Uh, he clearly, he could not tell them all the rules. So they're not sure what all the rules were. But they know that every week they can write down on a piece of paper what they need and it'll magically appear for them the next morning. Uh, but they, they can't ask for anything where they can, where they can harm themselves or, or create self harm. They also can't die. You know, last, last issue we had one of the, I think one of the, one of the 10, I forget his name. I think it was, I think it was Ryan. He tried to slit his throat and it heals. So they can't even kill themselves to escape the place. And, um, they they assume that Walter is working for probably the alien race that destroyed the planet Earth, but they don't know, but they're assuming that. They also assume that Walter must have saved them for some reason and that maybe he saved them because he, they're his friends. Um, they also, uh, finally, one of the, Sam, one of the members, Sam, in issue two or three, he discovered another house on the lake at another part of the lake, across the lake, and he tells them about that and and it's like so. There's another house on the lake that they they that they would go and visit. Uh, an, another another character. Uh, I I believe it's uh, I believe it's Veronica figured out that the sky is fixed. So when they when she looks and uses the telescope to look in the sky, the sky appears to be fixed. So that's interesting. So uh, why is the sky fixed? How come the stars don't move? They always seem to be fixed. That's interesting. And what's fascinating about this is. They go and explore the other house on the lake and it's surrounded by statues and ultimately the the statues on this other side of the lake, each one of the statues has a symbol of, because each one of them is individuals, uh, all of them from, you know, uh, you got uh, Nora, Walter, Reg, Veronica, etc. They all have symbols, slightly different circle symbols that represent themselves on particular statues and they discover that if they touch these symbols and ask a, ask a question that something will happen. And in this case, they, they all touch the symbols at the same time. And, and they say, you know, Walter, let us give us a door, let us into the house. And they end up in this other new house on the lake where they discover, they discover another one of their friends, <laughs> this guy, this guy named Reg, He's actually waiting for them in this other in this other house, and it's quite it's quite interesting because Reg tells them that apparently there's a way to still save the Earth, and that's very interesting because if the Earth isn't really if the if there's still a way to save the Earth because they we were all led to believe that the Earth is completely destroyed they when they watch TV and they it appeared as if the entire planet was destroyed except for this nice house on the lake. How can the earth still be alive? Does it have something to do with time travel? I'm speculating because the sky is fixed. Maybe they're caught in a time loop. Why is Walter so fascinated with them? Why does Walter want to preserve them? What's Walter's true agenda? Is there another alien race? I don't know, but I'm really finding that all these questions that I'm really curious to know what the answer is. And uh, James Tinian has done a great job here, really whetting my appetite. And the art is just, 
is really fantastic. The double page spreads are just absolutely, I love the double page spreads. I love the suspense. I really love, he's just a master at the horror genre, which is funny because I, uh, between this and uh, something is killing the children that especially that first 15 issues of something is killing the children. is just a, a master craft of horror storytelling. And this, this here is just impressing me to no end. And this is only at issue five. I believe we have one more issue and then it goes on a hiatus for a while. But uh, I'm, this is definitely one where I'll be picking up in trade. And I'm hoping it, if, it ha if it comes out in hardcover form, I'll be picking that up as well. So this is uh, definitely a must-buy. What do you think? Yeah, I'm hoping for some kind of director's cut. I'd love to have Tynan's explanation into these things because it is – obviously, it's building on, on the mystery and, and the, the strength of the series – despite the fact that he drops these little bombshells like Reg and, and, you know, being discovered as another character in this other nice house on the lake across the way. And then Reg himself drops the bombshell that they may be able to still save the world. That's all great. Like I love when Tynan does that, but the strength of the series, because you can't have every panel and every page have a big reveal like that. The strength of the series and the, and what keeps it going, the backbone of the series, I guess you'd say is the relationships and the interactions between these characters, because only some of them are close friends, you know, like maybe person A is close friends with person B and person B is close friends with person C, but person A and person C aren't close. They barely know each other, right? It's all about that interconnectivity and being thrown into this extraordinary situation. So I love the reveal that there was another nice house on the lake. I love the, the scenes of them trying to get in, break into it, you know, trying to, an automatic weapon using explosives and then, you know, finding that they, they all had to work together to get it open by touching their statues at the same time. But then the other part of my brain is trying to figure out, like you were talking about earlier, uh, Rocky about mystery stories and were all the clues there to kind of figure it out beforehand or not. Yeah. So I can't help but kind of speculate on what may be. You wonder if the powers that be the, the, whatever the alien race or whatever it is that gave Walter his powers and sent him to earth all those years ago to choose 11, 12 people, whatever it is to, to survive this. What do they know and what do they not know? Because the, the inhabitants of the nice house on Lake even talk amongst themselves. I think you mentioned it saying, well, he hasn't told us, he hasn't outright told us the rules, like the way everything works, maybe because he's not allowed to. So they're trying yeah. to figure things out on their own. Uh, the way things work now being that this other house was so hard to get into could it be that walter what he put inside the house what the knowledge that reg has and reg being there himself maybe the reason that house was so hard to get into is because that reg was hidden away from walter's compatriots or comrades or or rulers or you know who's ever making walter do what walter needs to do so yeah. walter through his time on earth and he mentions it himself in this story he when he first meets reg because he's friends with veronica and he first meets reg and he doesn't want to like or actually i'm sorry he's friends with reg but he and then he meets veronica he doesn't want to be friends with veronica because he's he's meeting too many people basically on earth that he likes and if he chooses to save Veronica, like, where does it end? Like, he's only allowed to save so many people. But every time he meets somebody new, if he allows himself, he befriends that person. And at some point, he has to draw the line. He can't save. You know, otherwise, he's just saving the, 
all of humanity, all of the entire human race crowded into the nice house on Lake. He can't do that. Yeah. So he clearly, he's in a way he's kind of being assimilated into the human race and into society. And so could it be that he decided to rebel against the, his orders or defy his orders? How can I do that? Well, I'm going to create the second nice house on the lake and I'm going to give Reg the knowledge of how to save the planet, save the human race. And I'm going to hide him in that nice house on the lake when whatever needs to go down goes down. And then I'll leave it up to the people that are in the nice house on the lake to save the day because then maybe he doesn't get blamed for it. Right. I, I didn't do it. The yeah. people at the nice house on the lake figured it out. So again, that's just my, you know, the, the rocks in my head rolling around trying to make sense yeah. of what's going on, but well, it's, it's interesting. Because... Yeah. Go, Go ahead. ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it's interesting that he, he, Walter said he never expected to like everybody so much. He, there was uh, everybody knew he, that he met, he liked, and he was yep. just, he knew that he only had, there's only, it's clear that he could only save so many. And it was, right. you know, and it is clear that the, he, this issue hints that he was closest to Reg. And so Reg might be the one, it's not surprising that Reg knows a secret about maybe being able to still save the planet because it, it's, it's, it's expressly stated at the beginning that Reg was closest to Walter. And that's interesting. So what, what is Reg, what does Reg know uh, that, that the rest of them don't? So it's going to be really interesting, interesting to see what happens next issue. Yeah, and it, again, it just shows the power of this story that it's one of those stories that's so good you're thinking about it while you're in the shower or driving to work or, or riding the subway or whatever. You know, you're trying to yeah. figure it out because it's so engaging and so uh, engrossing and compelling. The the world that Tynan and uh, and Martinez Bueno and Jordi Blair and, and everybody have have created. So yeah, my favorite issue this week by far. That was the last thing I expected when they got the second house open was to see reg come walking out so yeah big big fan uh so in addition to these books uh this week there is uh, there's a couple of other horror titles dc horror presents the conjuring the lover number five which continues that or finishes off that story actually there's a new one starting uh dc horror presents soul plumber that has a, a first issue there's also uh, justice league infinity number four which is the continuation of the justice league cartoon there's uh, Batman the Adventure, the Adventures Continue Season 2, which is based on uh, Batman the Animated Series. So uh, there's some other DC titles uh, that are coming out this week. And then in terms of collected editions, we have uh, a few as well. Um, we've got, uh, there's a Deathstroke Omnibus that collects the Christopher Priest run of, uh, of Deathstroke in its entirety. There's a Batman Curse of the White Knight trade paperback. That's the Sean Gordon Murphy verse. There's a Sensational Wonder Woman trade paperback that can, can that <laughs> collects, if I can get that word out, that collects the uh, Sensational Wonder Woman digital comic that Stephanie Phillips wrote. So uh, there's a few other titles in addition to, uh, to what we talked about uh, today. So, uh, yeah, I think Rocky and I, we both picked Na Nice House on the Lake for our, our favorite um, but I guess if I was to choose my least favorite DC book of the week, uh, you know, and it's not even cause it's terrible, but it's just, <laughs> again, going back to my Grinch of Halloween, like that, that, uh, are you afraid of dark side was, it was tough to get through that for me. Yeah. So definitely not my favorite. 
Yeah, I, I would, I would, uh, I, I would agree with you on that. Uh, well, there is one, I, I enjoyed. Nice house on the lake was was my favorite. My least favorite, I would probably. Well, we didn't review it, so. But no, I would probably say, "Are you afraid of dark side?" Was probably my least favorite. But it, I didn't mind bl- the Bloody Mary story. I think she might be an interesting uh, addition to the Rogues Gallery of of. Of DC, of some DC hero out there, I'm guessing probably the Flash, uh, since she's going to be pairing up with Mirror Master, I think. So, so all in all, it's we've had worse weeks, we've had better. <laughs> yep, exactly. Uh, and I'm I'm still crazy busy at work. I, I can say this every time. I, I'm really planning on trying to get back to some of the other episodes that we do, like the Marvel chronology and whatnot. But uh, we'll see if I can make that happen sometime soon. Uh, you have anything else coming out this week, Rocky? That you want to uh, tease? No, I got too many trials coming up, so I got my. I'm. I'm. I'll be working tonight, even before I go to bed. So, yeah, uh, I'm right too there busy. with me, the, the yeah. slave of the day job. So, uh, just a reminder, everybody, be sure if you're listening to us uh, audio only to head over to YouTube. Uh, look for the Comic Boom YouTube channel. Give it a subscription. Make sure to like this video. Ring that notification bell so you know when uh, Rocky has new content coming out. Uh, conversely, if you're watching us on YouTube and you're curious about the Comics Source podcast and the other content that we have in the library, there's thousands of episodes you can go back and listen to, comic reviews and interviews and all that kind of stuff. So just do a search for the Comic Source uh, on whatever your favorite podcast platform is. We're on all of them. Uh, or you can even do a search through your podcast app on your smart device. Just do a search for the Comic Source and you'll find us. So uh, once again, Rocky and I appreciate everybody joining. Uh, hope you all had a good time. And we will talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.